and everyone else, I invite you to take a Bible and to open it to 1 Timothy chapter 6. Timothy chapter 6, you'll find it on page 993 if you're using one of the Bibles that's provided for you there. And we'll actually begin at verse 11. As a church family, we've been going through this book chapter by chapter, and here we are in the last chapter and in the last section of the chapter, concluding our series. It's named Timothy because this is a letter written from Paul, uh, an apostle, to a young protege named Timothy, and the whole tone of the letter and the one that follows in 2 Timothy and the one after that in Titus is encouragement from church leaders to future church leaders on how to organize the church, on what the main things are to be the main things in the life of the congregation, and how to ensure that the faith is passed down from one generation to another, that the church does not die out simply when the the first believers and the first apostles are gone. Because there was this sense of all the earliest followers that they had gotten to see the kingdom come, they got to hear Christ in the flesh, and as he rose again from the dead, they thought they might also be around to see him come back in victory. But as Days turned to weeks, turned to months and years and decades, they increasingly realized that though they got to see it all kicked off and started, they, they won't be there to see it finished. And so this has to transfer from them to others. And so they give instructions in these letters about how to pass down the faith to other people. And so now we're looking at verse 11 to the end of 1 Timothy chapter 6. Paul writes to Timothy, but as for you, O man of God, flee these things, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness, fight the good fight of faith, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge, for by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. And that'll conclude our reading for this morning. I'd like to look at one of the phrases in this portion that is called the good confession and consider it from three different angles. 
First of all, Paul says to Timothy, by way of reminder that Timothy has made the good confession. When we hear the word confession, usually what then comes into our mind is the idea of admitting to something wrong you've done. Have you confessed? Have you come clean? Have you acknowledged whatever it was that maybe was hidden? But that's not how confession is used here. The good confession is not saying out loud what you've done wrong, but it is saying out loud what is true about God. The good confession that Timothy had made that Paul is reminding him of is a confession of who Timothy knows God and his son Jesus Christ to be and all the difference that that makes. There's other times in the Bible where we are encouraged to confess in coming clean with things that we've done wrong. But that's not what Paul is reminding and encouraging him here to. And one of the ways we know that, if you just look in verse 13 uh, or in verse 12, when he describes the good confession, he says, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. So there he's saying this good confession of Timothy is about the eternal life to which he is called. So we don't have the full content of what it was, but we know what it's about. What is it that Timothy said and believed in the presence of other people that had to do with eternal life? So if someone would come to him, and Timothy, how do you have the hope of eternal life? How do you know that God is not only with you here and now, but that you will be with him forever? And Timothy's response to that, his ability to answer that, is his ability to share the good confession. If we look, though, at other places in the letter, as Paul, by way of reminder, has thrown out a couple of phrases, we get a sense of what this good confession would have included for Timothy. Because Paul, as a gift to us, puts so much of it in there. So if your Bible's open to 1 Timothy 6, just go back to chapter 1 and look at verse 15. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. And so Timothy could have said, I believe that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. You look down at verse 17. And this Jesus who came into the world is the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, and to him be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. In the next chapter, verses five and six, I believe that there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Chapter three, verse 16. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. Jesus was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up into glory. And then what we read at the end of chapter 6 in verses 14 to 16. Of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession 
to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time, he who is the blessed and the only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. You put all of that together, and you have a good confession. I believe that Jesus came into the world to save sinners. I believe that that Christ is the king of the ages, immortal. I believe that he is the only one that could ever be the mediator between God and men, and that his life offered as a ransom was done for all people. I believe this was vindicated by the Spirit, seen by the angels, proclaimed on in the world, and I believe he's coming back again. It's the good confession of why he came, of what he did, of the hope we have of him coming back. And Paul, all along the way, is reminding Timothy of the things that he has believed, which make him a Christian, which now give him authority in the church of God to pass on this faith to other people. So it's not acknowledging every wrong thing he's ever done and coming clean, though that's part of it, right? Confessing that Christ came into the world to save sinners is an acknowledgement that we are sinners that needed a ransom to be paid. So it includes that. But if all we ever do is admit our guilt, we're no better off. If all we ever do is come clean with the yuck that's inside of our hearts and minds, it still doesn't give us the hope of salvation. It still doesn't tell us how to be cleansed from it, how to be redeemed from it, how to be restored as Jerry talked about and as we sang about. So what makes the good confession good is the good news that it contains, that Christ has come into the world to save sinners. But then for me, that raises a curious question because later in the chapter that we read, Paul refers to Jesus' good confession. He says, Timothy, you made this good confession and that Jesus himself made the good confession before Pontius Pilate. So what is Jesus' good confession? It's different than Timothy's. There's some similarity, but it's also different. And if you know the gospel stories well, you know that Jesus before Pilate was rather indirect with him. Pilate said, they're accusing you of being the king of the Jews. Are you? And he said, that's, that's what you say that I am. And Pilate kind of gets frustrated. And what do you mean what I say you are? It's what they're saying you are. And he goes back and forth. But eventually Jesus says, you've said rightly and for this reason I was born for this reason I came into the world and my kingdom is not of this world and anyone who is of the truth is a part of my kingdom Pilate just kind of dismisses him and says what is truth and Christ doesn't answer back but later as Pilate's trying to get out of what is happening in the final moments of Christ's life on earth Pilate's kind of insulted that Jesus doesn't show, if you will, more honor or respect to him. And he basically says, don't you know what I can do with you, Jesus? And Jesus says, you can do nothing to me. Nothing to me that the Father has not given authority for you to do. 
And so he speaks to someone who represents the empire and the most powerful empire in the day, in the world at the time. And Christ says to him, everything you do is under the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the emperor of emperors. You have no authority on your own. It's my father who has authority over all these things. And that's a good confession. Christ acknowledging why he came into the world, what he was about to do for the world, and how all of the authority in the world is under the dominion of his father. When we consider both of those, there's clearly similarities. But for Timothy to make his good confession, he then passed from bondage to freedom. He went from death to life, from being lost to having a home when he made his good confession. For Christ to make the good confession before Pilate, he went from life to death. He went from freedom to bondage. For him to say what he did before Pilate as he was being accused by other people and to not try to get out of it but to stand there and be firm in who he was and in why he came is what eventually put him up on the cross. And so those very accusations of what we believe by faith is who he really is were written up on his cross, king of the Jews, and then spoken to him in a way just to make fun of him the entire time by people who didn't believe the confession they were giving. And they said to him, if you're the king of the Jews, why can't you do this? If you can call angels, why don't you? And every good thing that we would say about Christ was then in those final moments spoken to him in sarcasm to mock him. And just as much as his confession required him to speak truthfully about who he was, it also required him to be silent when he was falsely accused. And he did that for you and for me. Before Pontius Pilate, before everyone, Adam, around him at the cross, making fun of him, he did exactly what the Father had sent him to do. And so Paul is reminding Timothy of his confession that he made that enables him to be a Christian, but reminds him that that confession is only meaningful if Christ made the ultimate confession in coming to this earth and being willing to go to the cross. And he's reminding Timothy of all of this because our confession is at stake in Timothy's willingness to do everything that Paul has told him in this letter. Paul wants Timothy to prioritize these things, to pass them on, to teach them, so that other people who are just young in the church in Ephesus, people who are not even yet born, will one day be able to make the same confession that Timothy made. And that's the challenge for us, right? How do we pass on the most important things to the people for whom we have responsibility.
but, but that's our longing. If any of you are in uh, education as teachers or administrators, the whole goal you know of what you're asked to do is to do your job well enough that you're no longer needed. That at some point you've passed on the information and given the instruction that if your student is given the exam and they're taking the test and you're not there to tell them what the answer is, they can tell what the answer is. They can figure out what the problem is and how to solve it. That's your responsibility to so transfer the knowledge and information that you have that they know it for themselves and can answer it when you're not around. That's the same basic challenge of all of us who are adults in the faith. Whether it's over our own kids, our nephews or nieces or kids who don't belong to our biological family. How do we so teach and instruct that when one day we're not here, and we don't get to answer for them, and they have to answer the questions that come to them, that they will give the good confession, that they will stand and own in their own way their faith and say, this isn't just what someone else believed. This is what I believe. This is my faith. This is my answer to the question of who is Jesus and why did he come and do you believe he's coming back again? In different Christian backgrounds, we'll all experience this differently, that if your background was Catholic or Orthodox, Lutheran, uh, Methodist, and you were baptized as a child, still, at some point, you had an experience of confirmation in your teenage years, where what was done publicly before a congregation at some point is asked to be attested to and by yourself to say, do you believe these things? And in our practice, primarily to reserve baptism for those who can make their own profession of faith, we still have, as Jim and Emily requested, a time of prayer for them as a family to say, this is your way as parents to commit to the process of instructing them in the Lord. But why are we doing that? In the hopes that one day they would say it for themselves. That they would articulate it on their own when they have the freedom to choose any number of things that this would become their confession. And so when we ask what are the tools or the things that we use in order to pass down our faith from one to another, there are a variety of things. There's no exclusively one way to do it, but we need tools, helpful ways of getting information and, and, and teaching that is valuable to us into the minds of other people. So a few of them that I use in my own home. One is a catechism, which is a, a, a practice that many Christian traditions use, but it's just a series of questions where you give a question and then there's an answer. One, it teaches them to ask questions. It also teaches them that there are answers to those questions. But it gets them to think in the right categories about their faith. Now, the nature of this is that most of this subject material is beyond, right now, my five and three-year-old's capacity. I, they don't fully get what they're saying when they say this back. But here's one of the questions. Is there any way to escape punishment and be brought back into God's favor? Yes. God reconciles us to himself by a redeemer. Who is the redeemer? 
the only redeemer is the Lord Jesus Christ. What sort of redeemer is needed to bring us back to God? One who is truly human and also truly God. The next two questions are why truly human? Why truly God? Then the next one, why was it necessary for Christ the Redeemer to die? Christ died willingly in our place to deliver us from the power and penalty of sin and bring us back to God. That question in particular struck out to me when in both our men's and women's Bible studies in the fall, we were going through a a book called Life on Mission. And one of the questions in there was, in your sharing your faith with another person, what is the response when you ask them the question, why did Christ die? Which is a very specific question, but also for most of us, a time to reflect and say, I don't know that I ever asked that question. But it is one of the questions that gets to the heart of the matter. How do you understand why Christ had to die? Is it just because there's bad people in the world and they mistreated him? But how we answer that question defines what we believe about the nature of his mission and the nature of our hope for eternal life. So my goal now is to hope that this is an answer that can be memorized, which doesn't mean it's believed. It just means it's known. That hopefully one day can actually be believed. And where it's already come to fruition, because one of the questions is, what is prayer and how did the Lord teach us to prayer? And so in memorizing the Lord's prayer, we were driving in the car and my oldest said, Dad, I'm not sure I want to go to heaven. Really? Yeah, because conceptually it was, I don't want to go away from everyone I love and my home. So the idea of heaven to him just sounded like being gone because everyone he knows in heaven is gone and it was hard for him to understand how that's good news to be gone from everyone you love and know so I don't want to leave home okay so how am I going to explain this (laughs) okay do you remember the prayer that we pray yeah our father who art in heaven what do we then pray your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What we're praying for in that prayer is that everything that we believe and know to be true and good about heaven would actually come to earth. That we're not trying to be separated from everything we love and everything that gives us a sense of home. We're praying that God would bring heaven to earth. And in the book of Revelation, in the last picture, is heaven descending, coming down. So when you think about it, don't think about it as leaving everyone you love in every place that feels comfortable. Think of it as finally all of that goodness being made permanent forever. Oh, okay, I want to go there. Yeah. And again, how much of that was understood, I don't know. But I could have the discussion based on memorized information that was there to build off of. 
instead of, I don't remember the prayer that we pray because we don't pray. Or when we do, we always pray a prayer that we make up, so there's no prayer that I have memorized. Music is this for children. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. What does that mean when you're three years old? Not a whole lot. But when you see that mom and dad or grandma and grandpa are going through something that's completely shaken them and life just doesn't seem to make sense for people and you can say, you know how we sing sometimes? All other ground is sinking sand. Like we're feeling that right now. And that's why we believe in Christ because he's the only solid rock everything else breaks down decays everything else can be lost knowing a song like that is helpful to passing down and teaching the faith that's where I feel tremendously gifted in just being raised in a home where people loved music because though my father is no longer here to tell me what he believes I can remember every song he taught me. And I don't need him to be here to remember what he believes. That's a gift to be given for us as adults to seek to do with those who are younger than us so that they can one day make the good confession. What are the songs that they're learning? What are the stories that they're hearing? What are the things that they're memorizing? And then another example talking about heaven after a recent funeral that we were at, I was trying to explain to the boys that not only are we going to meet other people that we've known and loved, we're going to meet some of the people that we read about in the Bible. We're going to meet Daniel. We're going to meet Moses. We're going to meet David. And then my three-year-old's like, but I don't want to meet Goliath. I said, don't worry, he's not going to be there. But in his mind, pretty quick, wait a minute, if we meet all of them, I don't think I want to do that. And then there's other books that are just helpful devotionals and resources. This one's called Thoughts to Make Your Heart Sing, written by Sally Lloyd-Jones. Very brief devotional, finished. Just before he died, Jesus shouted from the cross, it is finished. What was finished? Jesus was saying, everything you need to come back home to God, everything you need to be free and happy in God, everything you need to live forever, I've done it all. It wasn't a cry of defeat. It was a shout of victory. The great work of rescuing us was finished. There is now nothing you can do to make God love you more and nothing you can do to make him love you less. It is finished. And if we want to pass that on to anyone else, it has to be what we believe. It has to be our confession for it to become their confession. That they see it lived out in us. That it makes a difference in our lives that we would say Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, that he is the king of ages, immortal, the only God to whom be glory and honor, that he is the one mediator between God 
and men. And so that is the challenge for us, to consider simultaneously if what has been taught to us and if what we've heard has become ours. That from this place, if you're all on your own and you're asked the question, why did he come? What did it mean when he said it was finished? That you could give the good confession. And our responsibility to communicate his word, last week we talked primarily about doing it non-verbally in the way we live our lives, in the way we conduct our work, in the way we inhabit our neighborhoods and communities. But all of that is a way of building credibility so that when we're given the opportunity to answer the question, we answer it. We can say why and who and how. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the way your gospel over thousands of years has transformed hearts and minds. The people who did not believe in you, who would not have answered questions in a way that would have glorified and honored you, had experienced you, encountered you, been transformed by you, and became followers of you. We thank you for the way that you dramatically saved the Apostle Paul from someone who persecuted and hated the church to someone who then spent so much time in the growth and care and nurture of the church. We thank you that we can read a letter from him to Timothy on the importance of the faith and passing it down. And we pray that you would help us to take our place in this day to know what we believe, to know why we believe it, and to be able to share that with others. Father, help us to accept the call to become irrelevant, to grow to become unnecessary for those who will carry the faith in the future. Help it to be our delight and our joy to pass it on and to watch them take ownership. Father, help us to, as a congregation, encourage each other and be a resource for each other to do this well. In your name we pray, amen.